Good morning, Outlook family. Sure is good to see everyone this morning. Whether you're with me in the room or you're together with us online, I'm just glad we're together. Amen? And I'm looking forward to jumping into God's Word. I really like that video with the Vanderfords. That was, a, that was a blessing to see. Isn't that great? Man, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, you can clap for them if you want. They're awesome people. And an awesome message there. That was good. That was good. Well, speaking of God's Word, let's jump right in. In this series called Truly Blessed, we are looking at the eight opening statements of Jesus in His famous Sermon on the Mount. That's actually where this, this picture was taken in Israel, where it is believed that that sermon took place. They are each proclamations of blessing, descriptors of those people who experience and enjoy life as Jesus gives it. Now, he's not talking about those who can as if only a few are allowed. He's talking about those who will enjoy and experience it, as in the folks he describes are going to be the ones who will want to live and experience his life. And here to read to us the third beatitude from various biblical translations is Nolan Stoltz, a freshman at Mount Vernon High School. So give it up for Nolan. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed, inwardly peaceful, spiritually secure, worthy of respect are the gentle, the kind-hearted, the sweet-spirited, the self-controlled, for they will inherit the earth. The meek and lowly are fortunate, for the whole wide world belongs to them. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. God makes happy those who quietly trust him, and do not try to get their own way. The whole world will belong to them. Happy are those who claim nothing, for the whole earth will belong to them. Blessed are those who are gentle, they will inherit the earth. Well done, Nolan. Thanks a lot, man. Appreciate that. Yeah. That's good stuff. That is really good. Jesus is saying here that it is a blessed thing, that it is a good and happy thing to be meek. And that meekness is a virtue venerated in his kingdom, useful in the life of a disciple of his. So we're going to dive into what that means. And before we go any deeper, though, I want to highlight something. Jesus is definitely reminding his readers or his listeners at this point, we're the readers, of Psalm 37. His words, in other words, would have sounded familiar to those who were listening. And I always try to bring in Bible connections uh, where I can. We're reading this, but in the Old Testament, we read something very similar that would have rung in the ears of Jesus' initial listeners. In Psalm 37, it says this, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, and those who hope in the Lord, will, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they won't be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So that context will help us as we unpack this concept that Jesus is introducing to us here of meekness. Now, meekness does not mean what we might at first think it means. Today, we might first think of meekness. When we hear the word meekness, we might think of weakness or cowardice, or passivity. In our culture, meek 
is not what most people aspire to be. But meekness is not weakness. As these translations revealed that Nolan read to us, the best synonym in English for this original word in the Greek is meekness or gentleness. Those are both perfectly solid words to use in the English for the original word in the Greek. We're talking about meekness as not being apathetic, lazy softness. That's not what this is about, but a chosen and disciplined gentleness. This meekness is actually strength. There's muscle and sinew and toughness to it. The ancient Greeks defined this word that Jesus has chosen to use here in his beatitude. This was not an uncommon word and a word that would have been used in other Greek literature. It was defined this way, the virtue of the one who acts with gentleness when it is within one's power to act with stern severity. Now, this can be hard for us to absorb in our culture of triumphalism and self-confidence, but when we stop and think about it, all virtues are a balance of extremes. And in this case, you might have one extreme of total self-confidence. I'm completely convinced of my own opinions, and I don't really ask for anyone else's. I'm full of self-assuredness. Or you might have the far other extreme, in which I have zero self-esteem and zero sense of self and at an unhealthy level. But somewhere in between is what Jesus is talking about here. And in general, I'm guessing in our culture, given how the word meekness can sound to so many of us, we're being urged to rethink just how self-assured we should be on any given day or how assertive we should be toward others. Dial it back is what I hear when I think of Jesus saying these words, blessed are the meek. Now, the ongoing witness of the scriptures calling you and I as followers of Jesus to meekness and gentleness and even quietness, man, I'll confess, it's downright uncomfortable for us, maybe, as we think about these things. Here's just a small sampling of what we read in the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Someone say patient. Man, patient is a big concept linked right here to gentleness in a big way throughout the scriptures. Bearing with one another in love. He wrote to the Colossians, Paul did, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with these are like a set of clothes we choose to put on. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. This is what we as believers are meant to become more and more of. When Paul is writing to a guy named Titus, who's a pastor, and he's giving him some advice about what to counsel to his congregation, he says, remind them to slander no one to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. The Apostle Peter write, uh, writes this, Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, and do this with gentleness and respect. This is just a small sampling. We really could go on and on, but clearly this idea of gentleness or meekness is a core virtue for those who claim Jesus as their Lord. That tells me that I, and maybe you too, have a lot to relearn about what meekness really means and what our, uh, the way we treat each other 
should look like. Aside from love, of which meekness is an expression, I'm not sure there's another virtue of Christ that I've found to be more countercultural, and ironically, that can even be so in the church, yet more essential than this one gentleness. We love to get angry and then be justified in our anger. We long for power and we will justify any means to get or keep it. This idea of gentleness or meekness runs against the grain of our flesh, but I'm convinced it's the way of the cross and the one who gave his life on it. There's great blessing in it, Jesus is telling us here. And in fact, if we watch how he lived, great power in it too. In fact, our meekness or our lack of it for you or for me will show up most clearly in how we approach the two things I mentioned, anger and power. So let's unpack that here from the scriptures. First, let's talk about choosing gentle patience over anger. This is absolutely a major aspect of this word meek, or to be meek, or meekness. Back to the original language for just a second. This word was used to convey self-disciplined emotion, or emotion under control. This was a key aspect of what the word meekness meant. Aristotle actually defined the word this way, the ability to bear reproaches and slights with moderation, and not to be easily provoked to anger but to be free from bitterness and contentiousness. That's what we mean, that's what was meant when the word meekness was used. See, anyone can fly off the handle, and any of us have. Lose their temper, bluster with fury. It's easy to substitute volume of spirit for volume of sound, right? Anyone ever experienced that? And it's easy to replace patient self-examination, some humility, instead replacing that with quick accusation or assumption. Talk first, think later, right? We've all been there. Maybe pray after that, right? Now, this doesn't mean we don't stand against hate or violence or injustice when it comes against us or against others. There are things in this world that righteous anger is the appropriate response, but we have to check ourselves, right? We're not the saviors of the world. Jesus is. But it does mean we think carefully and control prayerfully what brings us against another, what raises our anger and causes us to treat another, not gently, but harshly. Anger uncontrolled is a huge opportunity for spiritual maturity. In fact, I have found that anger uncontrolled will become a ceiling to maturity in every other area of our lives, that until we submit that to the Lord and begin to grow in that area, we won't progress very far in other ways. It's an emotional immaturity that will stunt us in every other way. The scriptures are constantly calling us to be patient and slow to anger. Here's one uh, instance. James chapter 1 says this, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Now, that's not the word of Rob. 
That's the word of God, okay? Because I would probably write it differently, right? Human anger can get a lot done. Human anger can convince people of how wrong they are. Human anger, you know, human anger is a useful tool. The word of God says something different. It will not produce the righteousness in me that God desires for me. Human anger won't do it. For some of us, my scriptural prescription would be to read and meditate on that every day, right? Every single day. Well, that's just the way he is. Sometimes we might hear someone say, or sometimes she just gets that way. There is a difference between not harshly judging someone for their humanness, right? We're all human. There's a difference between not powering up on someone and judging them and ignoring someone's counterproductive or even toxic behavior. Too often, when it comes to this subject right here, we excuse anger and all that goes with it. And we shouldn't. The early Christians didn't. They recognized its toxic, corrosive effects on our own hearts, on our relationships, and on our witness. Colossians 3 is just an example. Paul is exhorting these Christians to leave behind their old ways. And he lists all kinds of besetting sins and and acts of darkness, so to speak. And then he says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now, he says, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Now, I don't know if you grew up in church, I might have expected a different set of things there to be the things that Paul went for first in that list, right? A whole set of of bad sins, so to speak, that we all grew up being told uh, that we should avoid, and we should avoid them. But interestingly, Paul also sees as equally corrosive and as equally necessary to grow out of things like anger, rage, and malice, and slander. And we must always think of our Lord as well. Whenever we are in a teaching like this, let's go back to Jesus. What, not only what did he say, but then what was he like and what did he call us to? I'm thinking of when he talks about turning the other cheek, right? He talks about resisting an evil person. He talks about not retaliating, crucifying our anger and our need to take matters into our own hands. And that's, that's not an easy thing to obey. Sometimes we might hear that teaching and we just think, I just can't do that. Man, I'm just not wired that way. I just lose my temper sometimes. Man, anger, you know, I just, it's just part of who I am. Friend, tell that to your Savior on his cross. Explain your petty feuds and bruised ego to the one who took the nails. Look at him and say, sometimes I just lose my temper. Anger, you know, it's just part of who I am. As a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth, the scriptures tell us, as he went to that cross. The angry, aggressive person is at odds with themselves, I've found. And in a world of perceived enemies, they are their own worst. We can be our own worst in this regard. And they make life difficult for those around them. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says, calling us to choose patience, Gentle patience over anger. I'm not claiming that that's easy. I'm only claiming that it's good according to Jesus. And it's possible by his spirit. The other half of meekness, as we read about it in the scriptures, seems to be quiet influence instead of power. 
Centuries before Jesus, the people of Israel had returned from exile to the promised land, the land of Israel. But they still, by Jesus' time, did not fully possess it. Those godless Romans ruled the land, and the Jewish folks found that intolerable and humiliating. And so this provoked a growing number of Israelites to become what were called zealots, violent revolutionaries who thought it was best to use the world's ways of power to achieve what they believed were God's goals. They would inherit the land, but do it by force. By announcing that the meek would inherit the land, Jesus was contrasting and condemning the tactics of the zealots. This is part of the context of what Jesus is teaching here. Those tactics, as we probably realize, aren't unique to only then and there. And the church at large has fallen for this too many times. Jesus was proclaiming that it's not the power-hungry or the angry or the violent who accomplish His purposes, but the gentle and the peaceful and those who trust God rather than the levers of force or political takeover. Sky Jathani writes about this in his book, What If Jesus Was Serious? And he's thinking about this, he's writing about this particular beatitude when he says this. This is a report, an important reminder for those of us living in a divided land where everything has become politicized between us and them. Like the zealots, we can be tempted to use the world's ways, coercion, power, and fear to, quote, take back the land for God. Instead, Jesus calls us to put such things aside and discover the power of God available through meekness. See, the church and the gospel, we're always, and we lose sight of this sometimes in America, where we think bigger is better and, and a bigger platform or, or, a, or a flashier um, way of doing things is always going to be the better thing. The church and the gospel, I've really come to realize this over the years, we're always intended to be a seed that grows. Or as Jesus put it, a bit of yeast that works through the whole batch of dough. Or as he put it elsewhere, a light that simply glows steadily, and you might even say gently. This seems to be what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Thessalonians, and he says this, make it your goal to live a quiet life. Now, I'm going to stop right there for just a second, because I'll confess, if I were to fill in the last part of this sentence, or this phrase, I would not have thought that the next thing was going to be a quiet life. Make it your goal to take over the world right? Make it your goal to convince as many people as possible. Now, these are all not bad things, but they're framed wrongly, right? He says, oh, oh, you're going you're gonna to inherit the earth. Remember, the meek will do exactly that, but this is the way you're going to get there. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business, right? Someone say, nunya, because that's exactly whose business it is, right? It's none your business. Minding your own business, he says, and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live. It won't be your Twitter, the number of Twitter followers you have. right? It won't be the size of your platform or the flashiness of your church service. It's going to be the fact that you choose to live according to my word. Waging a culture war as many Christians and pastors in America have tried to do in recent generations, would have been nonsensical to these early believers. 
Those who believe that the wealth worth finding is only financial or the power worth pursuing is merely political are taking the bait and missing the point. Christian nationalism, so-called, is probably modern day's most glaringly obvious example of missing Jesus' point in this regard. Conflating God and country, confusing the kingdom of heaven, promised to the poor in spirit with the kingdoms of humans and their empty promises to the one to be powerful. Too often the church at large has aligned itself not with the humble cross of Jesus, but with the boastful corridors of political power and potential, always elusive, but potential cultural influence. And then ends up excusing and explaining away atrocious things. We forget it's in meekness that we inherit the ability to influence the land, the society, the culture. That it's in leading a quiet life that these kinds of things end. Who holds the world together? Who's the salt of the earth? Who's the light of the world, Jesus says? Who is in the end holding all these things together? It's people whose names almost no one knows, right? People like you and me. People who are simply, humbly, imperfectly, but wholeheartedly seeking to do right and good in this world according to Jesus and His ways. Amen? It's not... It's not the celebrity, it's not the actors or the actresses or even the famous politicians. In the end, it's going to be people like you and me holding this world together. Others claim their rights. It's the meek who consider first their responsibilities. See, the disciple of Jesus can say, watch me quietly ignore this world's definitions of power and success and become truly powerful and successful. Because we all know, even those who reject God or have yet to follow Him and are pursuing their own way, we all know on this earth what real power and success look like. Because they really look like a meaningful life. They really look like the love of people close to us. Those are the things everyone is in the end aiming for, even as they chase hollow alternatives. And it's far too easy to mistake strength for force and violence either in our deeds or many times just in our words. We strive to take. We long to dominate society. We want to have power. It's not, that's the opposite of meekness. This is foreign language to those who are meek. Instead, we are to be granted the whole earth in the end. True cultural power. By living a quiet life that's loud with truth. By being a part of a humble church. Simple, but deep with love. All I ever want to do is be a gentle pastor who shepherds souls. No huge platform, no celebrity status, right? None of that stuff that the world seems to think is what true fruitfulness looks like. I don't see it in the Scriptures. And I'm not sure it's really working out that well in the world. You and I leading quiet, humble lives that love each other and learn to love each other well and love our God more and more deeply every day what I think this world needs more of. Amen? Man, you and I, we want to see change in folks many times. Maybe they're, they're hurting themselves, maybe even making decisions that you can tell are self-destructive, and we want to change, but we can't fall into that temptation to power up over them or, or to try to make them change. We must love them toward those changes, not shove them toward those changes. Love is its own kind of force, one often underestimated, sadly so, 
but often the most powerful. This world shames bullies when they think the cause is unjust, but also celebrates bullies when they believe that the grand enterprise or the great undertaking is going to be worth it. Just look at the results, they say. Even in the church, we might say that. Just look at the results. But Jesus wouldn't stand for it. In Luke 22, he says, you're not to be like that, contrasting the disciples with the way the world thinks of authority and power. The greatest among you, he says, instead, should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Again, I ask us to simply think on our Lord. Meek and gentle, Jesus uses these same words to describe himself in his heart. The same word from the Beatitude shows up here in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, he says, and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Jesus was tough, no doubt about it. He stood up to power. He challenged those who abused others. He took the heat without backing down. He was and is never weak, but neither is he severe or stern. Or stringent. Dane Ortland writes about this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, or easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus was and is meek, and the earth, we read, is his footstool. One final thought before we wrap up. This verb here, inherit, it simply means to possess what has been promised. And of course, it's granted to the meek. They would never seize it. Inherit is the perfect word for them. They're not going to go take it. Jesus says, I'm going to grant it to you. And this word for earth can also be translated land. In fact, both words are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament, earth or land So the dominion promised at creation all the way back in Genesis chapter 1 is now restored here. You'll get the land. You're going to have actually true authority and influence, and you're going to find it through meekness, not by power, but by his spirit. So what happens on this land, in this plain, on this plain, is not most influenced by those you might think, but instead by those that we mentioned earlier, the salt of the earth. This sphere, literally and figuratively, in which we work is where we get to say the kingdom of God is among you. And this field of work, this land, the farmer is meek and patient, always painted in the scriptures, is patient, doing the planting, but relying on God for the rain and the sun. Jesus in this is also drawing on ancient themes of the promised land, that the nation of Israel would dwell in peace in the promised land or drift into exile. Go your own way in your own power. You will find yourself in a far country. Or pursue Jesus and hear the words that he says in that parable in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little and in a very similar theme, I will now set you over much or you will inherit the earth. They seem, in my reading at least, to be saying something very similar to each other. Meekness, friends, comes by the Spirit and our continual submission to Him. It's something we can cultivate in cooperation with Him, but it is absolutely a fruit of that Spirit inside us, a, a virtue that comes because we have put ourselves under His control. In fact, that's one last Uh, shade of meaning of this original word. It was used of animals who were broken or trained or under control of those who owned them. 
as we put ourselves under the ownership of the God who made us and loves us, we then find ourselves under his control in, a, in the best of all possible meanings of that word. And now we then, partnering with him, develop the virtue of self-control over our emotions, over our anger, over our longing for power. Galatians 5 says that the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Let's pray about that. Lord, we thank you for your truth. Uh, Jesus, in these words that you are, are dropping on us in this series, you are reminding us of what's most important. And you're calling us into in, becoming the people that you would love to see us be. Because you know that that is the best way to live. It's the, it's the lightest it's the least burdensome. It's the most vibrant way to live. And so, Lord, we're going to work hard at casting off our culture's definition of what strength and power look like. Often they lead us in unhealthy and wrong directions. Instead, Lord, teach us to, to understand your definition of what that looks like, what real influence looks like, what real power looks like, and what is worth our anger and what almost everything isn't worth treating each other in anger. Lord, these are lessons we confess we need to learn. Thank you for being our teacher. We submit to you. Grow this fruit in us. In your name we pray. Amen.